and grab a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're still walking through the book of Ecclesiastes this summer. We've been reading really Solomon's journal as he looks at life and really what makes a life worth living. And a life worth living is not just life under the sun, but it's connecting to the God who is above the sun and looking at life under the sun from the perspective of life above the sun as we live and walk through this journey. But Solomon is a realist. He says there are some tough things that happen in life. There are some difficulties. And, you know, life isn't always that grand. Uh, A lot of times it's the pits. And a lot of times it isn't all fun and excitement. Although there is joy and there are good things that happen, he reminds us to seek those things. And so a lot of his musings as he looks out on life are horizontal. He talks about life under the sun. And, And a lot of times he looks through disillusioned eyes. I'm sure we've Watch the news this weekend with disillusioned eyes whenever we see those things. And and we're just like, Lord, here we go again. And these things are happening. But sometimes Solomon breaks out of this cynical syndrome and this cynical cycle. And he gives us a kind of a different perspective. And so at the end of chapter 14, Solomon reminds us that companionship or having companions in life is very important. It's not all about work. It's not all about doing the thing. Because at the end of your life, you've got, you've got all the promotions, but you're alone. He says you need to take some time to develop some companions in your life. Those people who will walk with you and who will journey with you. And so if at the end of chapter 4 he says, companions are good, well, isn't God the answer to ultimate companionship? I mean, we talked about Jesus as a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So Solomon naturally now goes into chapter 5. He just talked about companionship in chapter 4. Two are better than one. It's good to have relationships. And now he moves into this above-the-sun relationship with the Lord. And what he says is, in chapter 5, he gives us a couple of things of how to deal with our religious behavior as we approach God. Really, it's, it's, it's worship advice when we think about it. Now, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, the verse is on your notes... Uh, Paul tells us what true worship really is. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, right, we're seeing all that God has done for us. We see how he has uh, forgiven us in Jesus. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So what is your true worship? Your true worship is presenting your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Everything I do with my hands, every place that my feet go, everything my eyes see, my ears hear, my hands do, is worship. And unfortunately, we've equated worship with singing. And it's not singing. That's what's part of what you do. But worship is not singing. Worship is presenting your entire body 24-7 to the Lord. This is true worship. So what does that mean? That means I'm never out of the presence of God. I'm never, after we leave here today, we are still worshiping. We shouldn't say, I've been to worship, I went to worship. Properly, biblically, we say, I am worshiping. When I'm doing dishes, when I'm taking the car in for an oil change, when I'm disciplining the kids, when I'm in the classroom when school starts in a few weeks, when I'm at the job, I am worshiping. It's offering our bodies as living sacrifice. So Solomon tells us, if that's the case, if we're always in God's presence and we are always worshiping as we offer our bodies, because we're either doing one of two things. We are either putting our bodies as a living sacrifice or we are giving into the dead deeds of the flesh. There's either life or death, and it's our choice where we present and where we offer. And so what he tells us in 
Ecclesiastes chapter 5, is really what we do with our mouths and how we approach God and the attitudes that we have. You know that saying, watch your mouth? Have you ever said that to your kids? They uh, will say something to you. What do you say? You watch your mouth. What What you're saying is there are some things and some tones that when they say to you are disrespectful. Now, they could talk to their friends that way and it wouldn't matter. But when they talk to you... It's disrespectful. Why? Because they are talking differently to someone in authority. They are talking differently to a parent or someone over them. You know, God deals with that the same way. Really what Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is, is, say, is, is saying to watch your mouth. We need to be careful who we are talking to. A guy's in the gym locker room uh, at the gym and the cell phone rings and he answers it. Um, he says, hello. Hi, honey. It's me, a woman's voice on the other end says, she says, are you at the club? Uh, And uh, he said, yes. She said, I'm out shopping and found a beautiful leather coat. It's only $2,000. Is it okay if I buy it? Sure, he says, go ahead if you like it that much. She says, I also stopped by that new Lexus dealership and I saw one of the new models that I really like. It's on special. How much? It's $90,000. Man says, wow. Okay, but for that price, I want it with all the options. Great. Oh, and one more thing, she says. I was just talking to Jamie and found out that the house we wanted to buy last year is back on the market. They're asking $980,000 for it. She said, remember, it was over a million dollars last year when we looked at it. I don't know, he said. We make an offer for $900,000, and they'll probably take it. If not, we can go an extra $80,000 if that's what you really want. Okay, I'll see you later. I love you so much. I love you too, he says. The man hangs up and he turns around and says, Hey, whose cell phone is this? It's always important. It's always important to know who you're talking to and to know what you're actually committing to. Well, that's really what Solomon tells us. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Follow in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Remember in that time it was the temple worship. You're going, the temple was the locus of worship. Now we, the right, remember there in the New Testament, there are no people, places, or sacred things. We are the temples. But in that time, Psalms, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. And so Solomon, the very first piece of advice he gives us as we approach God is something very simple. Say what you mean. We only say those things that you are actually committing to. What does he say? He says, guard your steps. Why? Because we are approaching a holy, infinite, loving God who is, who is pure. We need to guard our steps and approach him in the right way. Now, that word here is not really here like with our ears. When the Bible uses the word here, it's using it with uh, the intent of listening as to obey. When we ask our kids to do something and they don't do it, We say, did you hear me? And what we're not wanting them to say is, oh, yes, I heard the words. The anvil, the stirrup, and the hammer, and my ear was bouncing on my eardrum, and I heard the... No, what are we saying? We say, did you hear me? We're asking what? Why aren't you doing what I asked you to do? So Solomon says, when you go to the house of the Lord, he says, you go with the intent of, of obeying. 
And one of the things that he says about people, he says that they, they don't know that they are doing evil. Do you know it's possible for us not to, to know that we are doing wrong? Like we have things that we do, we have uh, habits that we do, and we don't necessarily know that they're wrong. That's why we need God's word as a mirror to hold up to our lives, to see the things that maybe we don't know that we're doing. And so he says, there are people that go, but they don't really know that they're doing something wrong. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 is on your notes. Look what David says. You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a what? What does he say? Broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. It's about our hearts. You know what David is saying? He says, you can come uh, to a worship gathering, a place where believers are gathered. You can do all the things. But he says, if your heart isn't in it, I don't want it. I can teach, I can give, I can do all kinds of things, I can sing, I can all those things. But he's saying, I I don't want that. What I want is your heart. You see, why does he want your heart? Because when he has your heart, everything else will come out. But if I'm just doing everything else and he doesn't have your heart, I'm a hypocrite. I'm just, uh, it's just all on the outside. There's nothing on the inside. And so Solomon says, when you go and approach, it needs to be with the intention of obeying. John White, in his book, The Fight, says this. It is God who wishes to establish communication. He is more anxious to speak to us than we are to hear him. He is incredibly persistent in trying to get through. Our real problem is that we tend to avoid hearing him. Truth liberates. It's not, it not only reveals a standard, but will set you free if you keep it. This is what makes scripture so different from other ethical systems, which are powerless to help the struggle. So the sacrifice of fools that Solomon talks about is, is, the, is the expression of religion done without obedience. And we've all been there and done that, but we've also seen people do that. That's why we say that we don't understand why believers do the things they do. It's because it's external. It's not that change of the heart that God has gotten in there and grabbed a hold of us. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Look at that next note on your notes, the next verse. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul. Solomon reminds us in verse 2, he says, don't be rash with your mouth. Now, I would bet probably all of us have gotten in trouble with our mouths. We just, uh, and in fact, have you ever had those moments when something came out and there's like, it's just like time stops and you're like, I cannot believe I just said that. And I can't get it back in there. Why? Because I was rash. Think about all the ways that we hurt one another and all the things that have been said. And if we could go back in time, we would take them back, wouldn't we? And so we know what it means to be rash with our mouths. But Solomon says, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't be hasty in making these promises before God. Why? Because God is in heaven, he says. And he needs to be approached carefully with weighed words. Like we need to think carefully about how we are approaching God. When the Bible in Ecclesiastes says God is in heaven and you are on earth, it's a statement of perspective and not distance. 
It's a perspective that God is in heaven, that he is the Holy One. He is the one who lives in unapproachable light. So it's not that God is way out there somewhere and we are down here. What he's saying is you serve a holy God. It's God's authority contrasted with human authority and human limitations. We do not approach God as an equal. I've seen that. You might have seen that too. Listen, Jesus is not my buddy. God is not my buddy. God is my heavenly father, but I approach him with respect and I approach him with reverence. He says, you are, God is in heaven and you are on the earth. That's the same phrase as under the sun. So what he's saying is, the reason we say what we mean is, we are approaching a holy God. He says, the dream is the vain thoughts of a fool. Is in the, in the dream, in verse 3, is that God will hear him for his many words. He dreams, and then he gets to work on that dream. In other words, don't daydream. Derek Kidner says this, The dream appears to be daydreams, reducing worship to verbal doodling. I love that phrase. A lot of times, our interactions with God is verbal doodling where we just don't mean it, and we're just kind of going all over the place. He says it's easy for us to doodle our way through worship. We go from one imaginary vista to another. Yesterday's experience with the kids, tomorrow's experience in the office, or finances, or problem, what's for lunch? What does it mean? It means our mind wanders. That's the business of daydreaming. And so Solomon says when we approach God that his dream comes with much business. The fool's voice comes with many words. Listen, the Bible cautions us to let our words be few. Look at Matthew 6, 7. Jesus talked about prayer. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Why? Because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. I think most people would benefit in their prayer life if they would cut their prayers by about 75%. Here's what I mean. We have a situation going on, and we spend minutes telling God all about the problem. (laughs) Oh, Lord, my car broke down yesterday. I was driving on the beltway, and I ran over a... must have been a screw on the side of the road, and then I had a flat tire, and then I had to call the tow truck, and the tow truck bill is $150, and they took it to the thing, and we're going on and on, and God's like, I know. I saw, I, I was there with you. I saw, the, I saw you. You just need to ask me what you need. You don't need to inform me about everything that's going on. That's why Jesus says that God knows the things you need before you ask him. And people say, well, if he knows the things, why do I need to ask him? Well, no, that's not the point. You just don't need to retell him everything. You just need to ask him because he's the God who knows. Isn't that liberating? And it's like sometimes we think, Lord, if I just set this all up and I just tell you about everything... Then I ask, and God's like, no, I already know. Jesus said, I can save you the time and the trouble of having to re-explain everything. And so the Bible says, let your words be few. Because a trouble by a fool's words could be avoided by keeping quiet. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. You know what it means? Don't talk too much. Don't talk too much. Most people would benefit from... talking a lot less and listening a lot more. Isn't that the caution that Solomon gives us when you approach? He says, what do you need to do? You need to go, but you need to say what you mean. Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. What is it? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Don't fill the air with the noise from your mouth. Be listen, but listen and be quiet and draw near to God. So what does Solomon say? He says, say what you mean. You don't have to go into all these uh, elocutions about all kinds of things and go all over the place and, uh, and try to manipulate God and try to, you know, explain everything. What does he say? He says, when you go, let your words be few. When you approach God, just you just ask him what you need. Now, sometimes we cry out to God, right? That's different. There's the prayer of lamentation, of, of lament, of just crying out to God. That's different. But when we have a need or we need something from God, he says, just let your, you just ask and then you trust. You don't have to wear God down. Isn't that why we talk with people on and on and on? We ask a question. We want them to say yes, but they say no. So what do we do? We don't accept the answer. We just keep on talking. Because we just think that if I keep on talking, I'm going to wear them down, and they're going to give me the answer that I want. And we approach God the same way. But he's in heaven. We're on earth. We're not approaching him as an equal. He's not our buddy who we can just kind of wear down with our words. He knows what we need, so we simply ask. And so the first thing that Solomon says is when you approach God in this relationship with him, just say what you mean. You don't need to be passive-aggressive with God. You don't need to be manipulative. You don't need to be deceitful. Because God's really the only one that sees our hearts anyway. He knows our motives. Nobody else knows our motives. Nobody else knows our hearts. But God does. And so this is a freeing thing when we go to the Lord. Is, it's just say what you mean. Lord, I'm struggling. I don't really like this situation. Father, this has really got me upset. Help me. Don't beat around the bush. Oh, Lord, I know I'm not supposed to be feeling this way, but I... No, you just state what you mean. Say it clearly. What do you mean? Now, the second thing, or Jesus says this uh, in, in Matthew 5, verse 37. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from where? The evil one. How many times has somebody asked us a question, and we meant to say no, but we said yes because we wanted to appear spiritual? Or we wanted to appear as a good Christian. And we say yes. But then we never follow through. Because we really meant no. Or we meant no. But we said yes. Can you help me with this? Yes. And then we're mad. Because it takes some time. And it takes some energy. And the thing would have been better just to say no to begin with. And so Jesus says there's a duplicity. When I say yes, but I mean no, and when I say no, but I mean yes, where does that come from? It comes from where? The evil one. Why? Because it's a lie. When I say no, but I really mean yes, I am lying. I'm trying to appear, right, on the outside. I'm trying to appear spiritual. I'm trying to uh, appear kind and accommodating, but I'm lying because why? The devil is what? He's the father of lies. And so when I say yes and I mean no and no and I mean yes, Jesus says, no, no, no. Just mean what you say. And that's the second thing that he tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is mean what you say. If you say it, do it or don't say it. If you say you're going to do something, you do it or else don't say it. Look what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4. When you, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. What's, that's exactly what he's saying, right? It's better that you don't commit 
then say that I committed, but I'm not going to follow through. Let your, uh, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Same thing Jesus says. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. He says again about this dreaming, right? We, we live in la-la lane. We live in this fantasy world. Well, if I just commit, that is enough. I don't really need to follow through. I'll just commit. And Solomon says, no, that's not enough. You need to mean what you say. Chuck Swindoll says this, we'd much rather bail out than follow through. A promise is more than a casual hope. A vow is a nice idea, is not a nice idea, but a hard, fast covenant. Whether it's a commitment to pay back $50 or stay faithful in marriage, the idea of sticking with a vow regardless is rarely more than virtual reality. That's what Solomon says. It's rarely more than just dreams. I'm going to commit today, but I don't really want to follow through. A vow should not be made hastily. It should be thought through. It should be deliberately made. In the book of Judges in uh, the Old Testament, Judges chapter 11, it was that cycle where people did evil and a, a nation came in and oppressed the people and then God raised up a judge to deliver them. And there was a man, his name was Jephthah. And he made a vow to the Lord. He had to go fight. And he said this to the Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house, when I return, I will offer it up. Sounds good. Jephthah saying, Lord, you give me success. And whatever comes out my door, I'm going to offer it up. And meaning as a sacrifice. And so when he comes home, what comes out of his door, but his daughter? And he said, I've given my word and I can't take back my vow. And we look at that and we say, that is terrible. Yes, it was terrible. It was terrible that he made a rash vow. But he followed through and he kept it. And when we make it, it must be kept even if it hurts. It's not if we make a vow, Solomon says, but when we make a vow. You are under no compulsion to make vows or promises, but when you make one, you keep it. A vow is meant to be obeyed and not to be delayed. These are not New Year's resolutions that we have no intent of keeping. <laughs> we all do that every like, I, yeah, I want to do this and this, but we have no intent. What he's talking about is a vow. It's a promise that when we say something, we keep our word and we are people of our word, so we mean what we say. I'm going to bring back the lawnmower tomorrow. I haven't seen that thing for five years. Where has it been? It's, it's meaning what we say. Think about the vows that we make to God. Lord, I'm going to meet with you every morning in my quiet time. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray. And then what happens? Next morning, I'll do it tomorrow. Next morning, I'll do it tomorrow. We have no intention of keeping it. Or it sounds like a good idea. And it's better not to make a vow because you're not impressing God when you say, I'm going to get up and have a quiet time with you. Lord, I'm going to spend time with my family. I've been working so, uh, too long, too hard. I'm going to make my family a priority. And months go by, and what happens? They still haven't seen you, because you're at work all the time. Now listen, it was, it was, is spending time with the family good? Yes. It's better not to make a vow, though, than to make one and not follow through. Lord, I'm going to dedicate my children to you, and I'm going to raise them your way, and then we just let them go off on their own way. Lord, I'm going to stop looking at pornography. Lord, I'm going to start giving a tithe, at least a tithe of my income, and we have all these promises, and they sound great, but we don't follow through. And Solomon says, we are fools, how God looks at us 
Look at Psalm 76, 11 on your notes. Make vows to the Lord your God and what? Fulfill them. The promises that we make, the vows that we make, are, we are to fulfill. And Solomon says, when you go before the messenger, it probably refers to the priest. The, these vows are voluntary, but they're binding. And because a failure to fulfill them is called sin. Nobody's forcing us to make vows. Nobody's forcing us to make promises, especially to God as we go before him. But Solomon says, if you do, you need to keep it. It's not just a, a, a platitude or a nice thought that you're saying. And what happens is it would result in God's punishment. And what does he say? He says, uh, we go before the Lord, and what do we, or the messenger, and what do we say? Well, it was just a mistake. It was a mistake. Oh, Lord, that commitment, it was a mistake. I married the wrong person. Lord, I need the money that I promised to give you. I, get, I got this big bill today, and I, I need this money. I know I committed to serve in this ministry, but Lord, my schedule's gotten so busy I can't show up. I was young back then. It was a youthful mistake, right? We all have those ways that we get out of it by saying, for one way or another, we didn't mean it. But listen, God doesn't buy any of it. He says, if you vow, if you make a promise, you need to keep it. And if you keep it, you'll be blessed. There'll be a way that God will work all of that out. And once again, Solomon comes back and he says, through many dreams, there is futility, but also through many words. Again, it's just like daydreaming. And it's interesting that both times he says, when you say what you mean and mean what you say, he always comes back to these daydreams that somehow we are not living in reality. We're just living in this spiritual fantasy world where if I just say that I'm going to do it, that's enough. God's like, no, it's not enough. You need to say you're going to do it, and then you do it. That's enough. It's not good just to make commitments in front of people so they're impressed. You follow through. Do you know what would be better? Is if we didn't verbalize the commitment, but we actually did the thing. And somebody says, well, why are you doing that? I notice that you're getting up early every morning and spending time in prayer reading God's word. Then you can say, you know what? I made a commitment to God. Then I'm going to do this. Hey, I noticed that you're coming home from work early and you're spending time with the family. Why are you doing that? Well, you know, I made a commitment to the Lord a couple weeks ago that I'm going to come home early and I'm going to see what happens. That's much more impressive than making this grand vow with trumpets blaring and fireworks going off and saying, here's what I'm going to do and then not do it. Why? Because Solomon says we are approaching God when we are making these commitments to him. In the Old Testament, there once was this rebel prophet he had taken a vow before God, and he said, I'm going to be your spokesman, and I would go where you send me to go, and I'm going to say what you tell me to send. And God says to this rebel prophet, I want you to go to Nineveh. But Jonah's political zeal outstripped his religious fervor as he took a ship to Tarshish instead of to Nineveh. Bad decision. He forgot his commitment to the Lord, and he split. Listen, God ultimately got his way. He sends a storm and a big fish, and he swallows the fish, and Nineveh, he ends up going to Nineveh, and the greatest revival in the Old Testament breaks out in this pagan place of Nineveh. Now, we can focus on the big fish. Well, what kind of fish was it? How did he stay down there that long? What did he eat? Was it dark? Did it smell? I don't know what was going on, but we missed the point of the story. Turn to Jonah, chapter 2. I'm going to just read a couple verses. It's page 774 if you're using the Pew Bible. Here's what Jonah says. In the belly of the whale. Some of our greatest prayers come when we're in the belly of the whale. 
He could have been on the beach, right? But no, he was in the belly of the whale. And that's where some of our most honest prayers come because we don't have time to be, to be verbiose. We don't have time to have all these words. We just cut right to the heart of the matter. And so Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I don't know what belly you're in right now, but even if you're there, guess what? God hears you. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. I love the honesty of these, of these people in the Bible. You know, we're so formal when we go before the Lord. Lord, I'm in distress. So I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. That's that grave, that place where I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Now, here's what he says. This is the key. I will sacrifice to you. Remember, what is worship? A living sacrifice of our body, of our lives to the Lord. He says what? I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. There's the key. Solomon made a vow, he made a commitment, but he ran away. And the way that he came back was, he said, Lord, with thanksgiving, I'm going to sacrifice to you. And what was his sacrifice? I'm going to do what I said that I was going to do. He was under no obligation to do what he committed to do, but he agreed to do it. And God said, you go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I ain't going there. They're all Republicans. I'm not going to go try to uh, convert that area. And God's like, you need to go. No, I'm not going. And he gave up on his vow. And God sends the fish, and he comes, and Jonah says, here's my sacrifice. And why was it a sacrifice? Because it cost him his pride, it cost him his time, it cost him his energy, it could have cost him his life. He said, but I'm going to keep the vow that I have made. His repentance is directly linked to the vow that he made earlier. I think a lot of us tend to be like Jonah. We've made commitments and we're running from them. And I hope the Lord is showing you some unfulfilled commitments that you've made. It could be just to pay back a friend $10. And when you get home today, you need to call them and say, Hey, I promised I was going to pay you this back. I'll have it for you tomorrow. It may be a commitment that you made to the Lord. And a lot of us, like Jonah, we're running and running and running and running. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to end up in the belly of a fish for the Lord to get my attention. I'd much rather keep the commitment when I'm walking on the beach. But God will get our attention one way or the other. And so we say what we mean, and we mean what we say. It sounds simple, but our lives, we know, are full of duplicity and wanting to impress others and wanting to impress God. But that's why Solomon ends in chapter 5, verse 6, with this word. He says um, that, I fear the Lord. He says, fear the Lord. Uh, Verse 7, part uh, B. God is the one that you must fear. Don't try to impress God. Fear him. 
I go before him and I don't try to impress him with all my flowery words and all the ways that I try to to do the things that God's going to look at me somehow and say, wow, you are awesome. Listen, God is never going to tell you that you're awesome because he's the only one who is awesome. He's never going to share his glory with another. He's never going to share his glory with us and look at us sometimes and say, you know, you're pretty great. No, he's never going to do that. So we try to impress him. And so how do we impress him? We say all these words and we say all these things. We sing songs that we don't mean at all, right? I joke about that a lot. All to Jesus I surrender, except this 90% I'm keeping over here, right? We do that all the time. And God's like, don't, just don't impress me with, don't try. I can see right through you. Other people can't, but I can. It seems like, it seems to suggest we use a lot of words to impress other people. We use a lot of words to impress ourselves, and we even try to impress God. But Jesus already has dismissed this idea. So what does Solomon say when we are to fear God? He says you need to take him seriously. Many words and many dreams are futile, he says, so it's better just to fear God. The foundation is what? It's our mortality. God's in heaven, you are on earth. Listen, we are weak, and we are small, and we are prone to fail. And we should give up trying to impress God with vows, gifts, and promises. He wants us to make it, and he wants us to keep it. David Allen Hubbard in Beyond Futility says this, Babbling, rambling, wild words may be all right in dreams, but they don't belong in worship. Our relationship with God is one of sober, respectful, reverent awe. False worship is as much an affront to him as obscene insults are to a wife or to a husband. Better to bribe a judge than to ply God with hollow words. Better to slap a policeman than to seek God's influence by meaningless gestures. Better to purge perjure yourself in court than harry God with promises you can't keep. The full adoration of our spirit, the true obedience of our heart, these are his demands and his delights. God means what he says. And when we come before him, he wants us to mean what we say. Why is that? Because God keeps his word. God doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. In fact, in Joshua chapter 21, the Israelites have moved into the promised land. And what does it say? Let's read this together on the screen. Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. How many? All. Isn't that the God that we serve? God says, when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I don't say one thing and mean another. And listen, because you are my image bearers, because you are in my son Jesus, especially as believers, I want you to mean what you say as well. I want you to keep your promises. I want you to keep your vows because that's who I am. And I want you to reflect me. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. you know something that we have that Solomon didn't? We have Jesus. He said, guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. And because of Jesus, we can approach what? With Boldness, the throne of grace, with not irreverently, not uh, loud and boisterously, but with reverence. But we can approach with boldness because it's about what Jesus has done. It's not about me. And so Solomon says, guard your steps. And God says, you as a believer, you are in Jesus and he'll bring you to the throne. He's our intercessor, the one that goes before us, our high priest. 
God is not impressed with us. But listen, he's impressed with Jesus. And when you're in Jesus, then he's impressed with you. My life is hidden in Christ. I want to close with this promise in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is talking and he says, Now, when I planned this, was I have two minds. He's talking about this travel thing. Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? The people were confused. Well, are you coming or not? Have you ever asked somebody a question and you can't get a straight answer out of them? And they're like, well, yeah. just tell me yes or no. Right? That's where you kind of get to that point. And that's what Paul's saying. As God is faithful, our message to you, now listen, our message to you is not yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, what does it say? In him, it's always yes. In him, it's always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. When you are in Christ, when you are in Jesus, the gospel says what? In Christ, all the promises of God are yes. God's not a God who says yes one day and no the next and yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. I don't know what he, what he say? When he says he's going to do something, he's, go, he's going to do it. And when you're in Christ, he's done it for you. What's the yes in Jesus? The yes is your sins are forgiven. The yes is, no matter what anybody can do to you on this planet under the sun, you have a home with him in heaven. That's a yes. The yes is that I am working all things together for good for those who love me. That's a yes. The yes is I will give you the peace that passes all understanding. The yes is if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. The yes is if you pray anything in my name, I will hear you, I'll give it. Those are the yeses. The world tells us yes, no, yes, no. We go to God, yes, no, yes, no. God wants us to come, and if we say no to mean it, if we say yes to mean it, but in Jesus, here's the great promise, it's always yes. I love that verse. We have people all the time, we just have no, we can't figure out what they're saying. Couples that have been dating for a mile, talking about marriage, are you getting married? I don't know. I can't get a straight answer out of her or him, right? We get all these conflicting messages. Why? Because we don't want to commit. We say yes and no at the same time because when I give an answer, that means I'm going to have to commit. And God says, I want you to say yes or no and commit to your answer. Do what you're going to say. But listen, in Jesus, my promises to you are always yes. You have all the blessings of God's promises in Christ. And that's the great news. The good news of the gospel is in Christ, all those things are yes. So are you a person that says what you mean? Or are you a person that is like, Paul, yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, no. I don't even know what I'm saying. I was on a uh, jury one time, and it was a workman's comp situation. And the lady was on the stand who was claiming that uh, because of her job as a janitor at the school, uh, her back had gone out, and she couldn't work anymore. But the other uh, side was an insurance company that we didn't know about, and they actually videotaped her on break. And she was out behind the dumpster with a bad back, smoking. And she'd drop a butt, and guess what she would do? Bend down, pick it up, and throw it in the thing. And then she'd bring out a big, heavy bag of trash, and she'd throw it up in the dumpster. But her back is out. That's why she's suing for workman's comp. But she's, and uh, we got in the jury deliberating room, and we're like, man, that lady takes a lot of smoke breaks, for one. She's out there all the time. So she gets on the stand, and the other attorney asks her a question. And she's like, yes? No? I don't know. Looking at her lawyer, she couldn't give an answer. Yes? No? I don't know. So I joke with 
the kids and Chrissy sometime when they ask me a question. Yes, no, I don't know. Like, why? Because I'm not committing. I don't really know what the truth is. I don't want to commit, but God wants us to commit. So maybe you're a person who lives life like, yes, no, I don't know, right? Be a person of our word. When we vow, we're going to keep it. Do you mean what you say? Do you say what you mean? And listen, quit trying to impress God. He's not impressed that you're here today. He isn't. Does he want? Yes, you should be here. Like, this is a place where we worship, where we get our, redirect our priorities. We get in God's word. But we'll go home and say, oh, man, Lord, I, I, you, I, yeah. Look at those people at brunch. Ah, oh, I'm a little high. No, God's not impressed. But we fear him. We respect him. We reverence him. We honor him. Would you please stand? And we're going to pray. Have a time just of commitment. Again, a time of decision to say, Lord, I'm not so sure that maybe I haven't been doing that. I've made all kinds of promises, but I, I don't mean to keep them. So here's the thing is I don't I either don't make them or I make them and I keep them. But I don't have to I can give up this impressing God thing because he's not impressed. But I fear him, I worship him, I reverence him. Let's pray. Father, we've all been duplicitous with our words. We mean one thing when we say another, especially with you. I'm sure we all can go through commitments that we've made and sermons we've heard and things that we decide that we're going to do. And Father, we get to the parking lot and we've totally forgotten about what we've committed to. But God, you want your people to be people of their word, to say what we mean and mean what we say, because that's the God that you are. And we thank you for the hope of the gospel that in Christ, all those promises are yes in him. There's a beauty about being in Christ. So Father, over these next few moments, we just stand in awe of you. You are the awe-filled one. You are the awesome one. And we just come before you with reverence and respect. The Bible calls that that fear of you. So God, maybe we need to make some commitments that we are going to keep. And Father, would you show us over the next few moments maybe some commitments where we've been lax, some things we need to maybe literally go home and fix. That's the kind of God that you are, and we thank you that we're able to worship you with confidence because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.